Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism is produced by the Meltdown Podcasting Network, um, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, and also brought to you by La Luz de Jesus Gallery, uh, Soap Plant Wacko Superstore in Los Angeles, and the Pop Sequentialism Traveling Exhibition of Comic Book Art. Um, we also want to give a shout out to uh, Designer Con, which will be happening the weekend that you listen to this. Um, Decon is an annual art and design convention that smashes together collectible toys, custom plastic, designer apparel, and so much more with an urban underground and pop art feel. Um, you can see me there. I'll be probably splitting time between the uh, DKE booth, um, probably visiting my friends over at the Panic Collective booth. And um, former guest Adnohia um, has her jewelry at that booth as well. And we'll also have some um, some products by Indecline, um, the world-famous um, graffiti collective. And that actually segues quite nicely into um, my guest this week. Um, good friend of mine, someone we have exhibited at La Luz de Jesus several times in the, um, the past few years. Um, a very different sort of um, street artist um, in that um, a lot of the paintings that he shows in gallery is very similar to the work that he does in the streets, but um, his painting style is an almost hyper photorealistic graffiti style that you don't often see. And so without further ado, I want to introduce my guest, Von Saro. How's it going? Very nicely. So um, your story is really interesting, and I think I want to start from the beginning and kind of go from there because um, a lot of people, when they think probably of street art, um, if they think of it at all these days, they're probably thinking of people like Shepard Ferry and, you know, doing the wheat paste thing. Um, to a lesser extent, maybe someone like, um, oh, I don't know, maybe Risk or, um, you know, who's who's a really big name these days? Um, who does the fake? Retina. Retina is a big name for sure. Mac. And, um, and those guys are more like uh, symbolic um, you know, doing symbols, a uh, kind of fake language rather than necessarily doing photorealistic or even um, narrative paintings. And, you know, people who are interested in looking at spray art the world over see that there are very different styles in different countries. And uh, you are also an immigrant. Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you got here. Um, I grew up in a place called Surrey. It was on the Canadian side of the border between Washington and, uh, uh, and Canada. And um, back in those days, it was rural town. So, you know, not much going on, just, um, you know, blue collar town, you know, what you would expect. Same, same idea as a blue collar town in the United States uh, of the 80s. And um, in the city, though, in Vancouver, there was lots of graffiti. So I'd always take the train and, and then, you know, go through on the bus yeah, and just find all the graffiti and just try to develop a style. And, um, and then, you know, I, when I was about 21 years old, I just decided to leave, um, for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, came to the United States. I came, uh, illegally and was here, um, without papers for about eight years. Mm -hmm. And, um, for the last about eight years now I've been legal and all that. So it's been an, you know, an interesting journey and, seeing both sides of America living as an illegal immigrant and mm -hmm. doing all the things that an illegal immigrant does from, for instance, the Mexican side of the border, you know, same type of work, same type of, uh, neighborhood, same, same lifestyle, mm -hmm. and then getting your paperwork and then becoming legal and, you know, seeing the other side of America and, um, you know, the difference, the disparity between the two. So, I mean, I've and then also then I've got the Canadian experience and then I've got the experience uh, from my family, from what I've learned about, you know, their travels. It's like we're a nomadic family who've just roamed from one country to another. And uh, for my family, it's been due to, you know, wars and revolutions that they've had to, to bounce around. So it just seems like we're nomadic people. And. So moving around seemed like just a natural part of my life too. And before your family settled in Canada, where did they come from? So my mom was born in then Palestine. Mm -hmm. And then um, in 1948, they had to leave. They went to Jordan. And then in Jordan, um, there was, a, I guess, a revolution in Jordan. And then they went to Baghdad. And then from Baghdad, they went to Canada. So it's just been, you know, bouncing about. And then before then, it was... Um, there was the genocide and then from the genocide the family went to Syria and then from Syria they went to Palestine so 
and this is the when you say genocide you're talking about the Armenian yeah, genocide, genocide. Yeah. 1915 through 17 correct now the um which is i think probably more prevalent on the awareness of people in Los Angeles that aren't armenian than in other parts of the country right. um because there's such a large armenian population here in LA um very famously i think the city of Glendale um became somewhat of a hub here in southern california and before Armenia, Armenia's had country status and it's gone away and it's come back and it's gone away um, as that part of the world has been very um, unstable. And the interesting thing is that the population of ethnic Armenians in Southern California is greater than it ever was in Armenia. Well, it's not greater than it is in Armenia. It's the highest population of Armenians outside of Armenia. Right, okay, right, right. there right, are right. more Armenians in the diaspora than there are in Armenia. Right, so, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to give an exact number, but there's probably about three, four times as many Armenians living outside of Armenia as there are within the borders of Armenia itself. Right. And then now with what's going, see, most of my family members were in the Middle East like places like Iraq, Syria, mm -hmm. Lebanon, and with what's been going on over the last, you know, 15 years or so, they've become refugees and now have dispersed throughout the, the world. And, you know, they're just wherever they could find a place. And so, you know, the family is really broken apart from all this that's going on. You know, mm -hmm. there's, it's just so disconnected. Right, right. And I think that when people, people watching the news, um, to most people, I don't think they even understand what Syria is. And of course, Syria was the birthplace of civilization. <laughs> um, the oldest still spoken language on the planet comes from, is from Syria. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that cloud the issue, especially in an election year, about, um, you know, xenophobia and the, um, the fear of the other. And um, the idea that, and, and a, I think an unwillingness to recognize that um, that accepting refugees is the best way to combat the people who are trying to suppress those refugees. You know it's that bizarre, isn't it? you know that people just don't quite understand that you know the more refugees that you support, you are creating the best type of American. You know, that who loves the American dream more than an immigrant? You know, who embodies the American dream more than an immigrant? Nobody does. And to create such goodwill, you then have members of a community who can immediately spot when something is, is not as it should be. Um, you know, we've, we did our, our first post-election um, podcast uh, this, this past week, and we, we spoke with... Uh, Isra Allison about the brand new Congress campaign. And uh, so I'm not going to mire us down into any kind of politics, really. But, um, you know, I think that it's, it's really important to recognize that street art itself is born of a frustration with politics. And when you look at the graffiti that emerged in Europe in World War One and World War Two, and people know the Kilroy was here symbol and kind of very famously um, became copied in the United States. People would draw the little nose drooping down over the wall and write Kilroy was here. That that's a great example of, of early graffiti, of, of um, lasting impression graffiti art. And of course now spray can art, which was born out of the graffiti movement, is much more complex than that. That it's not necessarily a caricature or a cartoon or, I mean, certainly there's writers and writers can just... Uh, scratch up on a wall, but um, and taggers and stuff like that. But um, people who are really um, adept at spray can art take a certain artistic technique and make it their own, and that's how they shine. And when did you first start hitting walls, and was it out of frustration? Yeah, so I was 11. I remember it really well. Um, there was a can of spray paint in the garage, and I just knew I had to have it. And so at first I just started painting in my neighborhood and then went up to my elementary school and just, you know, covered it up as much as I could until the can ran out. And then 
Um, so I was 11. It probably wasn't about another two years until I got my hands on another spray can. And by then, you know, I was like 13. And then I could actually start going to the store with, you know, a few bucks or whatever and grab some paint or a friend would give me some paint. Uh, actually, even like family members started, they knew I wanted spray paint. They didn't really know what for. And um, and they also didn't really realize that it was illegal. You know, that's the one of the benefits of immigrant parents. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like they don't like my mom would hear my backpack rattling with cans and she'd say, where are you going? I said, I'm going off to paint. She'd just say, okay, have a good time. Yep. Had no idea really what was going on. That graffiti was a crime, that it was a type of vandalism, right? She probably thought there was some like utopian wall that, you know, all the, the neighborhood kids went to <laughs> and, you know, it was like a community project. Like a skate or park, something. yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah, you know, that's, you know, one of the things that has been lost about graffiti now that it's become business, mm -hmm. you know, back in my day, there was nothing you could make from it. There was only more misery that could be come to your life from, you know, being arrested or beaten up or yeah. robbed or all the things that come along with it. Um, well, but, there's there's a connection there with with hackers like um, it was for the lulls. You know, I mean, the reason that you do it would be personal pride and recognition from other people who did what you did and um you know that that has that's shifted that the that type of accolade isn't enough anymore and honestly these days um a lot of the quote-unquote street art that you see isn't really street art um in that well i mean it's technically it's in the streets it's, but um, yeah but it's it's not i mean it's that's a misnomer you call they got it permission or, yeah they you got know like you know signed affidavits and yeah release they got lifts and projectors yeah. and shit. They probably have an assistant getting them coffee. Oh yeah, yeah, no, probably. There's probably five assistants helping them paint you it. Know. But the um, and not to belittle that because there's you know there's some great murals and there's some great artists that I don't think would put their art in public if there wasn't that type of guarantee that it was going to be out there for a while. Um, and certainly there's like the um the LA muralist conservancy and um they've been good about improving neighborhoods in that they contact businesses and say, Hey, look, we want to give you a free painting, a free wall. Um, we think that if there's a lot of, um, versatile, um, pieces of art in the neighborhood, that it will be an attention getter. It will bring commerce into the neighborhood. And that's a good thing. That's certainly not what graffiti was. And, um, you know, when I talk about like risk and, and like Nathan Oda and those cats when they were like doing stuff in the, in the mid and late eighties out in Venice, I mean, they were getting shot at, you know, not by, I mean, by gang members, you know, who were like, you're on our turf. And even if they liked what they saw and certainly, you know, a lot of the, um, there was you know, CBS and a lot of the um, the gangs that had that kind of broke off a bit into like really legit um, art collectives in a lot of ways. Um, that that was sort of a way of appreciating how much how good the art was within that particular gang, and they were still you know a gang. They were a, a criminal organization, but um, you know a lot of those guys. There's there's a, some amazing names that came in and out of CBS, and and I think even. Even Mir One was connected with CBS at one point. Mir, Mir was, I I don't even know if he's not anymore. If if, right. if he's not in CBS now, it was it would have happened very very recently. Like so he probably still last is. Last year, yeah. Um, I, a lot of my friends are are in um, CBS and other crews like can't be stopped for those who uh, who don't yeah. know why they're called CBS. And I've never joined a crew. I've always been what's called a oneer. It's just more to my personality, mm -hmm. not to because I don't take orders very well and yeah. there's always hierarchy in organizations. The yep. other thing is, um, especially in LA, like you were referring to getting shot at, well, you know, um, in the earlier days, I don't, I don't think it's like this right now. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not so involved with the, with the, the street culture, even though I'm painting in the streets still, like I'm right. older. So I, I don't know about that as much about the politics, but back in the days when I was younger, we're, if you were a tagger or a graffiti artist, you were green lit, which meant any Sureño gang, which is any uh, Mexican gang or Latino gang or even Armenian gang, were, were Sureños as well, um, in Los Angeles has permission to kill any tagger without needing permission. Yeah. It's like, and that's why it's called open season on taggers. Open yeah. season. And when they would go to jail, um, 
you know, you have your paperwork on you. And if you're in jail county for tagging, your life could be very difficult. So so I actually preferred associating myself in the hood with with the gangsters instead of the taggers, because in the hierarchy of the streets, um, gangster had a better status. So although I didn't I didn't bang at all. I just uh, would, you know, keep them as my friends and they would also protect me when I'd paint, you know, because they knew what it was like. And it, and when I'd go into another neighborhood, I would try to um, have a friend of mine um, who is in the neighborhood or who has a relative in the neighborhood make sure that, you know, that neighborhood is, is okay, that they know we're coming, they know we're painting and that we have the gang's blessing to paint. Um, when you have rapport with the gang, the, re- the whole reason the green light came about was because taggers were crossing out um, gang. Dead people's names. Not, yeah, stuff. names or just like the name of the gang that would be marking their territory. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's essentially, you know, you're, you're declaring battle yeah. on that gang when you do that. So um, because taggers love crossing shit out, mm-hmm. you know, it created a situation yeah. where, you know, where it was, op- you know, there was, there was that green light for for a good while. I knew quite a, quite a few quite a few taggers in the early 90s in LA and um you know I'm kind of famously I've, I've spoken about this and I think the statute of limitations is is far enough back that I'm not incriminating myself but um that no, I've there's been, murder there's no statute it's of not limitations. murder it's not murder okay. uh, I, I guess you could say I murdered an Angeline sign but um when Angeline the um a kind of famous um, local character um, who's got to be about 80, 75, 80 years old and, and still dresses like, um, you know, a 1950s, um, you know, like uh, sex kitten, uh, drives around in a pink Barbie Corvette. Um, I just saw her again the other day and actually oh, yeah, she I've asked me her. to take a picture of her and somebody and I was like, okay. Um, but she had she had changed her signs from the iconic classic uh, Angeline sign that had been the opening credits of Moonlighting to this really lurid, terrible one. And um, it just offended my sensibilities. And it was across the street from like um, an elementary school on Highland. And so I just decided to go there, go to the office building that was that it was under it every day with a ladder, a tarp, and a bucket of paint, not not cans. And I wrote, got milk across her chest a couple times. And I signed it, panic, you know, down in the, in the lower corner. And um, and it was getting fixed like every two days. Like I would, I'd, I'd, I'd tell my friends, oh yeah, I just hit that sign. They're like, oh, you didn't hit that sign. And I'd go in and be fixed and I'd be like, what the hell? You know, like I, I swear to God I did this, you know, like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I was like, watch, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go grab the ladder and my overalls and I'm going to go back to that building and I'm going to do it all over again. And I'd get there and there'd be a security guard would be like talking to this girl that worked at like the nail salon. I'm like, yeah, I'm here to fix the sign. He's like, didn't you guys already fix the sign? He's like, you know, they never do it right the first time. He's like, okay. So he'd get out his key and he'd open up the elevator to be able to go up to the roof, but he wouldn't go with me and I'd go up and I'd vandalize it and I'd get back in. I was like, it's all good now. <laughs> and I walked down the street and I think four times until the guy who owned the sign is like, I'm not paying to fix it. And I imagine that this, the owner of that sign was, shall we say, a gentleman friend of hers <laughs> and uh, was paying to have this repaired. And, and it's, it wasn't cheap then. It's, it's certainly not any less cheap now, but um, the price of billboards has certainly gone up. I'll tell you that for sure. But um, so, you know, that's tagging, that's not graffiti. And um, I knew a lot of those cats and they were starting to get beat up by gangs and stuff and they changed to stickers. So everybody would put their tag on stickers and then slap the stickers on stop signs and people's cars and, and, and windows and things like that. And w- what really has helped me is that um, I was, tagging was always just secondary. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, I always wanted to do pieces, mm-hmm. you know, like the more complicated paintings and you know everywhere i would put them i would get respect from the neighborhood because Mm -hmm. it wasn't just a tag it was something different and you know um that really did help me out so i didn't have to go through a lot of the hardships and plus i never like i i I do do it you know i mean a couple days ago i was at it again Mm -hmm. you know i mean i do it regularly i do go out with friends and i do you know little tagging missions it's just something that we do it's like a throwback to to our younger years but 
but stencil stuff or no no just you know just throw up your name write it right write right it, write it you know as many times as you can uh, even when i was younger i didn't really see a huge point to writing my name a thousand times on a wall mm-hmm. i mean but the thing is when graffiti guys were usually angry young teenagers and mm-hmm. adolescents who are also artistic and so we were merging like two sides of our personality together and coincidentally it's interesting that um inside of prisons the prison populations tend to be very artistic it seems like people with creative artistic minds have a harder time like buckling down and settling into a society that doesn't really respect creative thought you know but i'll also say this and um generally someone who's done a long stretch of time when they come out of prison is extremely well read and it's because you've got a lot of time to get good at something you've got a lot of time to um to put into whatever your endeavor is going to be um and that's what prison's supposed to be actually that's supposed to be the rehabilitation aspect of prison is that your time isn't isn't totally wasted um and i think that when you see if you see like documentaries on netflix about people who've uh, gone to prison for wrong reasons or that the system failed them, they ended up doing a lot of time, that the frustration is that they're unable to just study and do what they want to do, that that other aspect of prison, and not the punishment aspect, but the unintentional punishment aspect of incarceration, um, the gladiator um, mentality, the um, the frequent beatings and, and murders, not just among inmates, but the um, the beatings that are thrown to inmates from... Uh, guards on a, a fairly regular basis for um, minor infractions and that are completely illegal but um, there is no advocate you know in a prison for for a prisoner generally speaking um, we're going to take a little break here and when we get back we're going to talk to von saro about um, how he developed from um, being interested in in painting to the technical level that he has now. But um, we're going to hear a little quick word from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back on Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. I have with me here today uh, Von Saro, who is a respected gallery and street artist, and um, who's actually the feature artist in uh, La Luz de Jesus Gallery this month. And we'll still be up when this when this airs, and we'll be up until the end of this month, which is November. And uh, an amazing body of work. A lot of the pieces in in this particular show are painted on, um, shall we say, found traffic signs. Found, found, found traffic yes. signs. Um, definitely not um, municipal property. No. no. Um, and so, always a great idea for a show. But what I thought was was wonderful is that you didn't make it a super obvious um, kind of gimmick, you know, that it would be really easy to just like paint a symbol uh, or whatever you're known for on a stop sign and have it be very visibly a stop sign or something like that. Um, this particular show, um, Concrete Jungle, is built around animals and animals from wild animals and from the Serengeti, and you and you take that notion of, you know, a concrete jungle and kind of bring the two together in a way that is both obvious and inobvious. But, um, and they're amazing. Um, the render is incredibly high level, but certainly you didn't start off with with that technical ability. So how did you get from a kid who found a, a spray can in the garage and started hitting some walls to the point of this incredibly technical artist who is using a variety of techniques to produce um, gallery caliber work, both in galleries and in the streets. So I was um, living in Van Nuys, uh, which is a couple blocks from a school called LAFA, LA Academy of Figurative Art. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, by day I would wash dishes in a kitchen and, um, didn't want that to be you know my whole life you know uh, working for seven bucks an hour so I um, was online and I saw that there's a classical um, college that does you know they weren't even a college back then they're just a little hole in the wall and they you know you pay a few hundred bucks and you take a class Mm -hmm. and 
you know, their, 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 their teachers were like, um, you know, 18th century artists. And I'd never seen anything like that other than in, you know, books and in, uh, and online. So the school was, um, really so classically cl- trained guys. Yeah. And it was really close to where I was living and, you know, I didn't even have a car. So I, I needed everywhere to be accessible by bike or by bus and I could just hop on my, so what I would do is first 10 years of my life in Los Angeles were all within a 12 block radius. Yeah. And that's, and that's definitely also like a hood mentality is like people like stay within like three square blocks type of thing for, and it's like to them, it's like just going to like Santa Monica is like, you know, an adventure It's like the average person taking a trip to, to, I don't know, Cancun or something. You know, it's just, we used to have like a, a neighborhood hoopty and had no, nobody knew who the owner was. Nobody, you know, registered it or paid insurance on it, but it would get sold within the neighborhood and each time would get cheaper as the damage piled up on the car. It's like a res car on the reservations. That's exactly what it was like. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, that was like the car that just begged you to get pulled over. I mean, we had... We had a chain that was that had the um, hood held down, and it was because there was no front bumper, and the headlights were duct taped in, and we had Virgin Mary on the dashboard, and I mean, it was your stereotypical uh, ghetto car that. Well, he, it seems like Guadalupe did her job if you guys didn't get pulled over. In that yeah. Thing. Well, I mean, one of my friends, I think I don't know if that was the car, but that could have been the car that got him deported. Oh wow! So the luck did run out on the vehicle but it did have a you know like the system bumped that was the one thing that worked on the car is like you could hear that car coming for blocks but a couple 50 watt speakers whatever it was whatever it was it was it was great so anyways i had to be it just turned out that this place was in my backyard so and i worked night so i could take classes in the day and so i would spend all my money on that Mm -hmm. and I did that for, you know, like six months. And then um, one of the teachers at the school who I became friends with needed a roommate to help pay his mortgage. So I just moved in there and for another six months with him, you know, um, picked up everything I could. And then after that, I was just on my own and I just practiced, practiced, practiced. Because when you're at the the bottom of, of the food chain, is like you don't really have anything to lose. So you, you either just um, become complacent with that life or you you know, really work hard to, to move up. So, you know, it was, I, I had a hunger in me and I just felt like if I worked hard enough, I could um, translate my creativity like like artists um, before me had, Norman Rockwell or Rembrandt mm-hmm. or, you know, anybody like that. And it, I mean, it's certainly, when you say Rockwell, it's that's like really who I think um I see the most in your work. What you're doing is, you know, Norman Rockwell took very um, contemporary themes, just Americana, just situational life about, you know, growing up in small towns and and would paint it. It would make the cover of the Saturday Evening Post, you know, um, every week. And what you did with your first body of work was to kind of do these Americana-esque scenes of inner city American life. And um, to show, you know, that the differences between that kind of golden era America and the America that you had come to and were trying to make it in. And all those pieces, interestingly enough, I think, are actually quite optimistic. Yeah, there's there's always um, a yin yang in, in the paintings, at least I try to put them. So even if it's a dark painting, you know, there should be like a little glimmer of optimism in it or something. Um, but yeah, in those ones, definitely there was, um, you know, I was a lot younger also when I painted those. So you have that a little more energy too. So there's always going to be something, some sort of vibe that's upbeat, even in a painting that might be dark. And, um, but also the, you know, you, you captured a certain, architectural aspect of Los Angeles in some of those pieces. Uh, Beautiful paintings of graffitied bridges. Um, Beautiful paintings of the corner where, you know, you can tell by the degree of decay in the brick and the storefront and the trash on the ground that this might not be the best neighborhood, but there's a beautiful painting on the wall 
and there's still there's life you know whether there's children walking around um and whether there's a statement in the piece about it maybe being a dangerous area for children but children are going to be there that it captures this really specific moment of america and in doing so it becomes timeless yeah i mean i appreciate you know your your sentiment on that so um when when i was doing those paintings i think within the you know a lot of the darkness that is natural in my work there was definitely something that that shined through that i i do think that i still think that in la when you go into um more of the lower class blue collar neighborhoods um there's a vibrancy so when you do a painting like a norman rockwell style of painting if you're not putting that vibrancy into that painting um then you're not really um portraying you know this la the way that i know it uh, correctly that's an interesting aspect of even describing the kind of caste system if you will of los angeles that you can really tell the immigrant communities um, not necessarily because of the value of the real estate, but because they're very brightly decorated. It might not be an expensive building, but it's painted in really bright colors. Like there's this this vibrancy to the color palette that says, I might not have much, but what I have is going to shine. And that's true in the Mexican community here. It's true in the African community here, and, I, and I'm talking not African-American community necessarily, but there's Little Ethiopia, you know, a neighborhood that's um, on, on Fairfax, incredibly um, vibrantly decorated buildings, um, a very lively music coming out of uh, the storefronts, and, you know, the Jamaican community and, um, and a lot of different uh, Mesoamerican communities that really just bring this, um, this bright color palette to these neighborhoods that if that were not the case, would be dark and, um, you know, almost dingy. And the, that simple thing, paint, changes the aesthetic of, of the entire area. That's a really, I've, I'd never thought about it quite that way. Yeah, the, and the other thing which uh, you have to realize too is when, you know, you, you, you're not you don't have aspirations to get rich you know you're living day to day you live every day to the mm -hmm. fullest and that's the way we lived it was like we weren't thinking about our retirement you right know, we're, we're we're trying to survive and so every night people got together every weekend there were neighborhood parties yeah and there was a there were, you know when you go more towards like the suburbs everything seems so controlled and it seems so routine it seems mechanical and that they might have more money and they they have a lot more comforts but they kind of forgotten what it means to be a natural human being yeah a natural human being is spontaneous a natural human being is angry and happy and joy yeah. you know it's like the, full spectrum you know the one time we're you know, my wife and I were walking, we're going on a, just a walk and we ended up in a really nice neighborhood. And my wife was saying how much she loves the houses, but I, it was a Saturday. It was a beautiful day. And I pointed out, I'm like, look, all these neighbors, all these houses have giant fences, keeping them, keeping them fenced off from their neighbors, walls, security cameras. And I'm like, not a single kid is outside playing in this neighborhood. In I'm this like, good neighborhood. Yeah. It, I was like, <laughs> it looked, it looked like you know zombie movie where it's like you walk down the street and it's like everybody's gone you know it's like it's it's bizarre you know it's it, and to me a neighborhood or a community where you're where you don't know your neighbors and your kids aren't outside playing and there aren't friends it's like what's a play date you should just be able to go outside and play yeah, with your neighbor you I've, know i've never quite understood that concept yeah and i maybe it's because of you know, the, the time frame that I grew up, you know, I grew up in, in the 70s, in the early 70s, and you would just walk out the door and you would go next door and ring the doorbell and hope they had a kid. Yeah. You know, like, it. and you know, if I'm the youngest of six, so, you know, I've 
I knew there were kids in the neighborhood. You know, it wasn't like we moved into the neighborhood. I grew up on that block. So it was like I, I had that. Even that part was easy for me. It was like I can hear kids. I can just stick my head out the window. I can hear kids playing. So I can just go over there and, and introduce myself and say, hey, can I play too? You know, and and this notion of like, yeah, the play date is, it's exactly what you say. It's like, we're going to open the gate and we're going to escort the child right. out of the gate <laughs> avoiding the street into a car down the street into somebody else's gate or into a park where they've gotten a permit to hang out with their right. with the kids in the specific spot because you know you know heaven forbid that somebody else should show up with a kid that they don't know and and play yeah. it's it's bizarre to me you're it right is. but it's it's kind of that's the way things are now right yeah at least is. in big cities i mean it, it's so unnatural it's it's like we're scared you know with my kids it's like i notice um like the women in the family freak out when they're putting dirt in their mouth you know which i'm not saying it's great right but they're like but it's all but they don't freak out when a kid when my son when my kids are in the house and they're putting stuff in their mouth and god knows how many cleaners and bleaches and things like that right like dirt it's it's it might be nasty to put in your mouth, but it's natural, and then it builds their immune system as well. Unless you live in a super fun site or something, you know, where you know where there's a petroleum uh, leakage. But Perhaps. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I get what you're saying, and and um, and I mean that's interesting though too. And and you know your your kids are like incredibly charming kids, like bizarrely so. Yeah, that, that like these that kids old... get the whole world. They got the whole world planned out already, and they're like they're toddlers. One one's barely beyond being an infant, and the other one is absolutely a toddler. And I mean, we've we've gone into restaurants, and women just fawn over these boys. Yeah, they they're gonna they're gonna realize the world's gonna get a little more disappointing. <laughs> yeah, because right years. now they get everything, everything they want. It's like you know, I don't give them junk food, but that's all right. They just go out somewhere and mm. people are handing them lollipops and chocolate and stuff. Mm. And what am I going to say? You know, but that's also a, a big part of, of your, your work is that you're painting in these awarenesses of the danger that we completely, I mean, we don't even take it for granted. We just don't even recognize. And it's the danger of sugar and foods. It's the danger of, what money does like what what we're unaware of what money does um it's the danger of patriotism sometimes it's the danger of medicine and how um these these sort of things that we see in everyday life that we don't view as being dangerous that are absolutely dangerous and absolutely dangerous to our health and even the health industry we talked about before we even started recording today about um you know medicare and medicaid and and how um the system that's been set up to really help people um and it does and it's it's in place and it's good but it's not succeeding because it's doing good it's succeeding because there's a whole industry built around taking the majority of the money that somebody's paying that the person who has the insurance isn't necessarily paying and if that stopped then the good would stop. Of course. <laughs> you know, yeah. The faucet of goodness would just mm -hmm. be completely turned off. Right. And that's why we have um, an industry that puts profit over cure. So yeah. if you can suppress symptoms, which seems to be the new business model. For Is the symptom suppression, not curing, you not know? curing actual disease. Yes. Yeah. Because then you have a lifetime patient. If yeah. you cure something and boom, it goes, especially cancer. I mean, yeah. nothing's bigger than cancer. Mm -hmm. And the, the the whole setup, the chemo and there's whole hospitals. If you could say, oh, we got a pill that'll get rid of cancer and do away with it, you know, an industry that's... Or realistically, a here's a six-month treatment and a change in lifestyle. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and maybe we should stop um, putting so many chemicals in everything that yeah. we sell to you. Yeah. I mean, the the lawsuits against Johnson and Johnson, how are people not lynching? Uh, and that's just one example of countless examples. It's just one that I was just hearing about. More there goes our radio. Johnson and Johnson endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oops. Uh, but it's like, you know, the holiest of holies is mother and child and Johnson yeah. and Johnson has told itself as this loving, caring 
company and when baby powder you know is giving people cancer and apparently in internal oh memos gosh, yeah i see those ads on tv late at night for the for like lawyers the talc yeah. lawsuits yeah, yeah yeah and for decades you know an internal memo there's nothing surprising about it but right. that they've known about it and they suppress it it's like wait that's murder you know that's how are we as a society not up in arms about that you know it's like we we're so complacent and we whether it's big government or big pharma um it's like we don't hold them accountable it's like if you kill one person you're a murderer if you kill a million people you're a conqueror and it's like different you know yeah the death of one person is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic, I think, yeah. is the Joseph Stalin Probably, quote. Yeah. Now the, um, but that's interesting because what you've done in a way, and I think it's a really productive critique, is to put the time into painting things, and that becomes a record of a stance. And so long after we're gone, you know, if there's any record of humanity, um, you know, there's the possibility of important pieces of art addressing these issues remaining for someone to find again and you know the the body of work especially the medical um work that you did in a couple series ago um it was you know really scary looking needles and people in hazmat suits and um you know just this idea of is this cure worse than what I've got. I mean, whenever you see television, there's an ad, and I think they should completely do away with advertisements for medicine. Right? Like, why Why do I have to ask my doctor about a cure? Isn't that, he's supposed to know this stuff, you know? And it, it'll say, oh, you know, this this heart disease medication, um, side effects include heart disease, you know? <laughs> this may worsen your condition. You may bleed from your eyeballs. Your, your nose may fall off, you know? And it, it gives you like this really fast read on 27 to 100 symptoms yeah. that this causes rather than curing. And I don't know if that's that they have to because of the legalese and, you know, is there a certain accountability in 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 law that um, we've gotten so litigious. But I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say no because, have you, have you ever seen that documentary, Black Coffee? No. It's about the woman who burned herself with a McDonald's coffee. <laughs> and that was used as a reason, oh, this is a frivolous lawsuit. And they started um, initiating... Um, um, the ceiling, like limits on rewards. If you saw the photos of this lady, there had been 300 complaints against the McDonald's corporation for them heating their coffee up to a temperature that was absolutely dangerous to human beings. And they did nothing about it. There was tons of evidence in this case. Um, the woman got not just third degree burns, but actual tissue damage. Wow. Um, it looked like she had been blown up. Like it's, it's incredibly shocking. And most people, whenever you talk about the McDonald's coffee case, they're like, oh, that crazy lady who spilled coffee on herself and got like $40 million or yeah. something. Well, the judge limited her reward. The, um, the jury gave that woman, I think either one or two days of coffee sales at McDonald's. That was, that was all the damage that McDonald's paid was the equivalent of two full days sales of coffee. And how much was that? It was like $40 million. And um, it was, oh, was it that much? It might have been less even. I think it might have, it might have been $4 million or something. And the award wound up being like $180,000. Like the judge was dismissed the jury's award. And then Ronald Reagan um, campaigned on the frivol you know, against frivolous lawsuits because um, trial lawyers generally supported Democratic candidates, not Republican candidates. And um, George W. Bush um, passed a lot of laws limiting the ability for people to collect punitive damages. Punitive damages are so that you can send a message to a corporation that you can't keep doing things that damage people. It's not that this one person deserves all that money. It's that this company has to pay it to make sure they stay in line. And I've seen that type of of criticism in your painting. And it's, you know, especially true in, in the work we have up right now, there's a wall of eight pieces of currency and there's American currency, there's Iraqi dinar, and there's Turkish currency. The um, American currency has uh, kind of your signature scream and the eyeball paintings, these hyper-realistic paintings of eyeballs directly on the currency, which I guess technically is a crime. 
and um and then the um iraqi dinar has paintings of the the horrors of war right. you know on the currency one and my favorite piece in that is a kind of zombie uncle sam painted on top of saddam hussein's face on the right and then on the left a a child refugee I don't, that one has a uh, a screaming woman. Screaming woman, right, yeah. right, right. And um, and there's you know the and then the Turkish um money is a, a reference to an issue that's very very personal, right. personal to you in the um the failure to recognize the Armenian homicide uh, um genocide of uh, World War One, and um something that the U.S. government can't hardline because Turkey is such an important ally in the war on terror. So that they don't want to rock the boat, even though it's the right thing to do. And even though back in 1968, when Bobby Kennedy was was running for president, that was something that he was very, you know, clued into and was a very strong proponent of censuring the nation of Turkey for that genocide because it had not happened yet. Yeah, and that's kind of gone away. Yeah, it's a it's a strange situation, and you know, I don't want to um, continue the cycle by. Um, trying to promote hate right you know because then it just the loop just continues and continue and it's not good for my children or future generations right to continue um what has happened um but the only way we can be neighbors is if i mean because like i get attacked all the time on the internet um i don't reply because there's no point in internet (laughs) battles yeah where thankless task right where where you know um the the stance that um that that is accepted in Turkey is that there was no genocide committed against us. Actually, they say the opposite: that Armenians ran amok and started uh, massacring Turks, and that they never did anything to us except defend themselves when we were attacking them. So I think the I'm silent because I'm. That's such an a shocking um, miss. Uh, yeah, it's bizarre, you know. And and I get this, you know. And, wow. And actually, they. People, this happens um, a few times where they'll write to, you know, if if it's like on April 24th, I'll just, you know, put something for that day to just to commemorate. And then um, any of my friends, for instance, that leave a comment, they'll private message them and explain to them that no, 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 they massacred us, not the other way around. And I don't bother with a retort or a response, but, you know, it's 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 an ugly part of your past just like if you know armenians did something ugly to another country which if they're given power i'm sure they would do because it's human nature Mm -hmm. you know i mean i'm sure a thousand years ago when they were a more powerful nation that they they did do horrible things to other people azerbaijan or something right you know i mean every history is is every culture um has a history of violence towards somebody when they're on top right so i don't i'm not going to defend it when it's when and if in my lifetime um my country does it to someone else Uh, i don't fall in line with nationalistic fervor because it doesn't make you not love your your culture by saying there's something wrong here i I think it's the opposite i think your duty as a patriot yeah yeah, i mean your job more than anyone else to criticize when something is ugly within your culture so i mean what what you know i i have no expectations like armenians want i don't care about recognition by other countries i don't i know we're never going to get the land back i just think that nothing positive is going to happen we're not going to move forward until they say well it was really fucked up what our great grandparents did to you guys that wasn't us we're sorry let's move on um you know like how can we how can we have better relations you know we live next door to each other yeah but instead now now there's proxy wars like azerbaijan um and yeah um which is you know, right next to Armenia. And so they had a war in the nineties. Um, and then the war was, was starting again this year. And then the area is just too hot. So Russia, um, stepped in and, um, put an end to the war Yeah, and Russia funds both sides. So, you know, they're they're doing what uh, the United States did in the Afghan war. They're, they're smart. What, what they do is they, um, they give Armenia free weapons because of their strategic position Mm -hmm. to the middle East. 
um, get them close to Syria. Mm-hmm. So so they they give us weapons for that. And then Azerbaijan has oil, so they trade them weapons for oil. They they build both of our you know munitions up. And right now, war is not a good idea. So yeah. they put an end to it as it was kicking off again. But Although you got to wonder with um, with a president-elect Trump, with such um, numerous business developments in Azerbaijan, if that's going to embolden them, if if they're going to feel like it's a good time to partner up with you know the Trump organization in this country, does that bias any political power? This is a big discussion now because he's refusing to put his holdings in a blind trust. He's saying, "Oh, I'm just going to give it to my kids." Oh, that's not a conflict of interest. <laughs> it's you know with with him, it's it's such a wild card. Um, the way I explain it is if if I was living on the moon and I had a television, this is the best presidency in history to watch because to watch if it doesn't affect you yeah you know my 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 idea my thought on this whole thing was that i know the clintons are dirty rotten horrible it these are my my views i know that i shouldn't say i know in my mind Mm -hmm. this is what what they are um so i felt with with the clintons i know what i'm getting yeah more of this more of the same thing with Trump, I have no clue what the freak show has in mind for us. Nobody knows. So scary. At the very least, you could say it's great theater. Great theater if you don't have to go to the show. (laughs) That's probably a good place to end. But um, I want to remind everybody, um, and a lot of these themes are in the work. So, um, you know, go to the La Luz de Jesus website, and that's L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. And uh, you can search by name. You can search for Von Saro, and that's V-A-N-S-A-R-O. You can find Von Saro on a lot of social media. What's your Twitter and Instagram and all that? Uh, well, website would be vonsaro.me, and then Instagram, Facebook is all uh, just Von Saro, mm-hmm. one word. And check out the show, and um, there's some amazing and amazingly affordable um, work in the show too. The the currency stuff is incredible, and it's really well displayed. Um, and you know the larger pieces are just gorgeous. So uh, get in touch, and if you're in Los Angeles, by all means come by and visit. Tell them Matt Kennedy sent you. So until next time, this has been Pod Sequentialism. And um, I've been your host, Matt Kennedy. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.